something quite different for you this week. This is an interview that I recorded in mid-2019 with the poet Autumn Royal. Autumn had just put out her first book, She Woke and Rose, and she was then and still is now the interview's editor for Cordite. We didn't put the interview out back then, and now we are putting it out. That is one of the great things about being alive is that you get to change your mind. I have a few interviews in this category that I've recorded and they are just sitting there in a folder on my desktop that for various reasons the people who I chatted to just didn't want to put out in the world at that time. But I am really, really happy that I get to share this one with you now. It's strange listening back to something that you recorded God, what is it, like three years ago, a lifetime ago, I don't feel very much like the person in this recording anymore. Uh, I think that in many ways that's probably true for Autumn as well. One thing I'm grateful for is that I have way better gear now and you can hear me a bit better. Uh, I know how to use a microphone slightly better than I did back then. The other thing that I hear when I listen back to this is this timidity in my voice and that's something that I hope I don't have so much anymore or at least I I hoped that but in the last couple of months I have felt like maybe maybe it is still just as present and alive in my life as it always has been because I might sound louder now because I have better microphones but I still have so much of that fear particularly around poetry which I know sounds totally ridiculous right like what what is there to be afraid of but I've had five or six separate experiences just in the past couple of months that have really brought home to me the fact that I am still really scared and these have been experiences that have ranged from just slightly annoying to really pretty embarrassing to shocking by which I mean I was shocked at my own response because the question is what kind of fear is it is it false evidence appearing real or is it fuck everything and run Here is some evidence for you. A big part of making the show is asking people to be guests on the show. And I am really, really lucky that nine times out of ten, people say yes. And even if they say not right now, they often say, ask me again later. Which is is a great response, by the way, and one that I should learn to emulate more often. But what I have really started to notice particularly over the last year or so, is that there's a pattern to the people who say no outright. They're almost always women, or if they're not women, they are people of colour. There could be a lot of reasons for that. could have everything to do with me as a person. Uh, And I'm not questioning those people who have said no at all. They've all had very good individual reasons. But I couple that evidence with the fact that of all the people who've asked to be guests, none of the people who have asked me to come on the show have been women and none of them have been people of colour. So in other words, they have universally been straight white guys. I think that's really interesting. So what am I pointing at here? Well, I'm trying to point to silence. I'm trying to point to the fact that still... Even now, even after everything, I still choose again and again to stay small, to apologize, to assume I'm wrong, to assume that what I have to say isn't worth hearing. And it's starting to piss me off. Or more specifically, I'm starting to feel like maybe I can't live with that part of myself anymore. I'm going to try to move from my particular anger, confusion, frustration, to this conversation with Autumn, which again, I'm so glad to be able to share with you now. 
via a Dorothy Porter poem. I know Dorothy looms really large in Autumn's poetic life, as she does in mine and in the lives of many others. And the other week I spoke to someone who actually took a class with Dorothy. And he said to me that one of the things he liked most about her was the fact that she took no shit. She would tell you if your poem was good, if it was bad, then she'd ask you to come for a beer after class. I want to try to remember Dorothy more often. And I want to try to default to silence less often. So before we get to speak with Autumn, I'm going to share this poem of Dorothy Porter's. It's just a little slip of a poem, really. Snake Story. Death Adder, will I ever learn when to step on you? In the dark I can smell your rustling dry mulch home, but I can't smell you. Are you waiting? How do I shed this fusty skin of fear and walk with artfully reckless bared ankles? There's so much honour in the benediction of your dream deep venom. Like if if your body can't keep up, um, or you have limitations, um, then it's looked upon like that that's your fault or that you're disorganized. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I was, uh, you know, and that that upsets me. Like that is like that's like an individual blame for on a person. And yeah. you know, I've I've uh, studied a little bit of health stuff, and we all know like that an individual placing an individual, the fault of that of an individual who say can only afford to buy certain foods, live in a certain area without access to like say, you know, Mm. um, organic produce, which or like um, doesn't have um, like the confidence to leave the house and go for a walk or like their job involves like night shift, which is like really bad Mm. if that's, you know, the only thing that they can do. Um, you know, um, or say work in a supermarket and repress emotion, which um, I did for a while. I was a checkout, worked on the registers. And Me too. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. yes. Repression of emotion. Yes. I remember my little brother said to me at the time, because I was like 15, 16, 17, and I'd come home and I'd be so angry. And I guess I just looked like an angry teenager and I was an angry teenager, but I remember my brother saying to me, Alice, you just hate people now you hate everyone and I'm like yeah I do I really do <laughs> but that's what it makes you feel like yeah. and you don't and I like when yeah I worked for um I think it was uh yeah like Woolworths I yeah the only way that I could get through the day sometimes was by um uh because studies have shown if you don't express how you how you're feeling like it reduces your life um like takes years off your life because mm. it's you're using these um you're suppressing, yeah, I guess, how you feel. And I just used to, like, not scan people's groceries and, like, give them extra cha- like extra ch- cash money back. And I don't know. I to just get back at Woolies? Yeah, yeah totally. Right. And I was just yeah. like, I don't I don't know. Just they, they put me through a lot. Um, they I'm were... sure I did stuff like that. I can't bring to mind what it was right now, but I'm sure I did stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't normally do that in many positions if it was like, say, a small business. Right, But yeah. like, because I'd seen how they'd come into um, the town, which I was like, my um, I spent um, some teenagers in Torquay where my mum was living. Um, they basically just kind of came in and announced that they were going to you know, take over the experience of supermarket shopping and things like that. And, um, and all the small grocery stores went out of business. Fant- like, fantastically, the, like, independent supermarket, the IGA is still there. Oh, that's and, cool. Yeah, which is great. Yeah. Um, but there's now four supermarkets in Torquay. Yeah. So it's just been, like, developed so much that, um, like, basically it's a place for people who want to I guess have like are still subscribing to that you know um Americanized version of like you know the Australian dream which is a nuclear family a backyard a house of your own 
um, and then commute to Melbourne. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, what does this have to do with poetry? Um, I think, like, things like this are inescapable when it comes to poetry. Yeah. And No, I fully agree. Yeah. Yeah, because this is the... Um, just at a really basic level, this is the speed and, um, well, yeah, this is the pace of the world in which poems also need to be written. Yeah. So, like, say you are, did you write when you were, when you were a checkout? I, I wrote, I, I, I like secretly wrote, um, like as I grew up, um, in, yeah, this terrible mining town called Roxby Downs in South Australia, um, and was there like within a caravan park before the town was built. And then my parents didn't directly work for the mines. So we were like more of an underclass because we didn't work for Western Mining Corporation at the time, which is now BHP. Um, anyway, so I always wrote, um, in my diary secretly and, um, then I did kind of keep it up. I just never, um, did anything with it or thought that you could because Mm. I just didn't come from a background where like reading was an act. Um, it was always just really private and personal. Mm. I remember like writing on one of my notebooks not that my mom and my sister would ever go through them but something like if you if anyone right like opens this notebook i will hate you forever you know (laughs) and like i wouldn't but um just like it was embarrassing Mm. it was an embarrassment and people would like say oh are you still like writing or like you know and that was them trying to shame me like there was a lot of shame attached to it Um, yeah yeah I I feel that even today introducing myself and what I do creatively to people that I don't feel will instantly respect it you feel there is a lot of shame I guess I've I've had it said and I'm sure you've had it said to you um oh wow I wish I could just be a writer because you don't need anything except for like your computer yeah I've had that said also the whole like oh you get to work in your pajamas yeah work at home yes yeah well I mean I work at home um doing sessional teaching because there's no office like so there is a hot desk provided but um you can't leave anything there and um the amount of money it might take me to get from my house to the university I'm teaching at um plus the time it takes aside from teaching, being physically in the classroom, it's cheaper to just stay at home and work from home. Mm. And then I know that I do feel lucky most days that I can, that I can do that. Um, But there's some days where I know, like, I just want more infrastructural, like an infrastructure supporting me. So far away from that world now, I can't like immediately point to like, well, there's the issue, like that's what the problem is. But it just feels as if there's this huge expectation and pressure on academics specifically to be so much more than just teaching staff you know you're you're a you're a listening ear you're a an admin wizard you're knowledgeable and can become knowledgeable about a subject within two weeks you're fine with working at a hot desk you know you can magic up printouts from your home office (laughs) yeah it's like you're just a magic person um i just think in his mind uh, well i think that i mean my my experience is only as a sessional and um i have been for for around five years now so i feel like that does i don't speak a lot about it openly um but you know i guess this is a good opportunity only because I'm at this point where I am looking at alternative ways to make money because it's become so such an inefficient way and I'm not in it for the money because I love teaching and I want to teach and um, especially when it comes to poetry and writing and kind of just you know trying to show students like it's a very romanticized view but just emphasizing and and getting them to understand the importance of words just as what we were talking about earlier about how you know 
they're not neutral. No word is neutral. No word is neutral. No, it's either like, you know, it can be blissful, but it can be like potently loaded and, mm. you know, and there's violence, violence as well in, in so much of our expression. And mm. it's just having an awareness of it that I think will help these, these students um, in their life. Like it's, it's a philosophical kind of approach that I try to take um, only because I was so fortunate enough because of my teachers. Mm. Um but, you know, the university system, um, the way that it's structured has just taken, removed so much time to the act of teaching. So what do they expect will result? Um, and I just, you know, really hope that the system becomes so broken that there's no opportunity rather than to just reform um or that you know there needs to be radical change or there yeah. needs to be more new student protests but they the, most of the students might not have time to or or understand or there yeah. are people who are too scared to speak out um i'm even scared right now speaking up about it because i'm worried that one day that might impact on my my employability if i did choose to continue such a role but you know i think that um there does become a brink in which you need to reassess ways of still contributing to your like chosen community or the one that you feel like you can support most, as well as you know pursuing um, writing, which I I now view as a hobby because of um, the the structures. Like I don't think mm -hmm. of it as I think it's a practice, but I think I, 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 I'm, whenever I'm doing it, I'm enjoying it and I feel so privileged that I can have that time and space. Yeah. Um, and then there's um, making enough money to support yourself financially um, and to look after yourself and your family and like your community as much as you can. Yeah, I think it's so important. I think this is such an important conversation. I think it really needs to be said and I'm sure that everybody... Um, who's listening, who feels like, yeah, when we say finding the time for poetry, we're also, we're also talking about finding the money for poetry. And yeah, it kind of, it kind of breaks my heart when you say you think of it as a hobby, but I realize as you're saying it that like, I don't know, I, I, in some ways I do too in that I, I never, I was always so unhappy when I was trying to make money from writing. Yeah. It just made me so like up in even in 2017 I was like pitching articles and being like yeah one day I'm gonna be this like you know I'm gonna write for the good weekend that was always my goal <laughs> we all need those <laughs> but um yeah and somehow become like Benjamin Law Mark II but um the yeah I guess I didn't have the stamina or the capacity to sacrifice as much as I felt like I needed to or maybe the talent or or something and it took it, I got to a point where I was like I need to separate the thing that I love from the money mm. and now I have those two things very much in their own corners and I feel so much more sane and less like a failure every day <laughs> absolutely and that's what you just said like oh you're questioning like your ability like it's not about that it's it, it shouldn't be that's what I say like when people just that concept of like you know if you want something and you work hard like you deserve it and you'll get there and it's like no 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 it is a competitive world that we live in now um, especially when it comes to, like, say, employment or income, uh, housing, you know, yeah. living in Melbourne. I mean, we are still so lucky that we can find ways to to still live in this city, which majority of us live in because of, of work opportunities. Like, yeah. I, um, you know, would really relocate, but at this point I am here for work predominantly yeah um however I think the thing that's kept me going is that I've never thought that I could ever make any money off writing mm. and that for me has been really freeing and whenever someone questions that I just think well if you did just do it for money then you would just be like it would be reflected in your writing 
But you'd be doing a certain kind of writing, like you'd be doing, you know, like some of the work I do is like copywriting. So that's like, yeah, you're selling your capacity to write convincing things that you don't believe <laughs> personally. Yeah. Or like um, maybe you'd be writing like fiction that's going to sell really well, like genre fiction or something like that or ghost writing. Like, yeah, there's, there's ways to make there is there are ways to make money but it's like yeah what kind of although you were saying before about all writing is creative so i don't know maybe that's kind of i do i yeah. and i do think that like mm. i do think i mean i think i just subscribe now like to the belief that getting through the day is an act of creativity <laughs> um, i really do and and i don't like it when people say oh i'm just a creative person or like um, yeah, they're really creative. And you're like, well, you're really creative too. Yeah, my sister was saying this to me when I was up in Canberra the other week and it really broke my heart because she was sort of, oh, you know, you're you're the creative one. I, w- I don't get this. I would never be able to do this. I'm not creative. And my sister used to paint oil paintings when I was younger. And also she's raised three incredible children and she has, you know, an amazing family and life. And she also deals with, the more tricky aspects of my family hmm. like a freaking saint hmm. and I'm like what's uncreative about any of yeah, that like, <laughs> I think so and I think we need to place value on that and then I think yeah. that's when we come to this like upper like middle upper class concept of of creative like mm, for example mm. the other day I walked into an art gallery um which I won't name and I I, I just had this I just knew it would happen the way it did, but I walked in and all of these, the workers, um, or like the staff, you know, who are still working, like they're there, like they're, they're performing their act of labor, but that they looked at me with this, you know, they're like, what are you, you know, doing here? And I'm like, oh, I'm here to see so-and-so. And they were the guest speaker of, of a, of a, um, panel being held and they were like, oh, okay. And there was still this sort of, you know, like, um, a question uh like a a susness like so you know sussing me out like Mm. and so what are you doing here like I was dressed um prepared to do like act my role which was as I announced to them oh I'm the babysitter and they were like oh okay well yes so and so's just in um the other room and I was like thank you and so once it was contextualized you know and this is and and when people talk about you know especially people from more marginalized groups like talk about how intimidating it is to enter such spaces you know um I can't even imagine like how you know um uh I'm trying to think of the like how how jolting or how like emotionally impacting or um that might feel and and that's just you know and then after the event um I returned with said babies who I really love and I really love babysitting um however you know being a woman um you know entering mid-30s um looking after like the children of someone as the same age as me um you know and then being at an event after like at an art event and everyone um no one wanted to talk to me um everyone was happily talking to each other and even the you know um the person, um, the mother I was babysitting, um, was really kind and introduced me to people. And she's just a really generous person. Like she would never see that. Um, she would never view me as like just the babysitter, but the responses I got from most people, mostly like older, older people were like, Oh, hi. Yes. Hello. And I just feel like saying, you know, I'm a peer really as well. Like I'm, you know, maybe from a different discipline, but although I'm looking after someone else's children who you're obviously here because you feel an esteem and respect for, like I also have a contribution that I can make. And I think that after experiencing that for so many years, um, you know, you do become a bit jaded and tired and I've tried to channel that in my work because Mm. that's the only way I know how. Um, Yeah, I feel like poems are are places for... Sometimes they can be places for things that you have just said so many times to so many people and you never quite feel like 
it got heard or it landed in the way that you wanted. Yes. Um, yeah, because that's a, that's a multi-layered experience that you're describing there. It's like you, you are there in an employment capacity and you accept that and you enjoy the work and like it's all good but at the same time you're in this space surrounded by artists you're also an artist and they're not seeing you that way you know and that's that's really tough so it also yeah. yeah it comes with like layeredness and i think it is it's you know tied in so much with capitalism but like as recognition as well and then it's yeah. like what is recognition and what does that mean and mm. i know at times when when things I mean for example my uh, first book that I was like really so thankful and, and still I'm in shock um, that Kent Makata was interested in publishing it but I wrote that book um, at one of the most difficult times of my life I'd had experienced um, two really um, untimely and um, you know like uh, a, you know objectively tragic tragic deaths and um, when it came to the launch, like I, it, it didn't matter anymore. Mm. Like, you know, even though I'd achieved something that, you know, you know, autumn, you know, a year before would have, you know, was like, you know, a dream or an aspiration, you know, the reality that I was living in at the time, like, you know, it meant more to me to have strong interpersonal relationships and support um, through through the grief I was experiencing than it did to have this book. And so that's mm. what I also want to say is when people or students or people say, I just want I just want to be published or I just want this and I just want that. And I'm like, you know, as long as you are loved or, or you know, I'm getting, you know, don't mean to sound getting into the sap, but we need the sap. <laughs> you know, like the sap is a connector. Like, yeah. But if, if you don't have that... Um, first and foremost, um, then none, it does nothing means anything like when it comes to like this, I guess, capitalistic or like a traditional way of, you know, validation via say, um, a book, Mm. which, um, we all know, um, does mean something to so many other people, but that doesn't solve you. Like it can't hug you. Like... You know, it can't make everything better. No, and and a number of poets have said to me uh, when I've written to them about their their books, you know, just if I've a particularly like a poem or something, and they're often quite surprised and they're like, oh, I felt like that kind of sank without a trace, you know, like if you don't get that amazing review, um, what is the response beyond the launch really? Like, mm. yeah, it's not as if, I mean, I don't know, like, I don't know what it's like, but do people get in touch with you and say, oh, is this poem about me? Or like, do, do you, is the discussion ongoing? Because your book's been out for a couple of years now, 2017, wasn't it? I think so. Yeah. It's a, yeah, I, um, I hate the years. I hate yeah, the time. time. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's funny. Um, I think so. No, no, um, no, I... Um, a lot of my, a lot of the people I choose to spend, I mean, I, and so I think that, um, the communities, um, that are here in Melbourne, um, are really welcoming. Um, like it just takes, you know, a couple of times to show up to an event and to have someone speak to you. Like, but I think they've been really supportive and I think especially, um, the support that Kent Makata has provided via Cordite has been um, invaluable to me to feel a sense of community, which is why I wanted to be involved with them. Mm. Um, like, conti- like in a continuation as like I'm now doing interviews, editing, but with the book, no, uh, cause yeah, like a lot of my friends don't, my closest friends, like they might've read it, but they, they're, they're not, um, maybe poetry isn't predominantly their form of enjoyment. Like they're, they're either mm. like they, they um, practice more like visual art or music or, um, so like the, um, our, both of, or each of our like practices, um, kind of merge just in conversations that we have with each other mm. rather than, um, sitting down and, and, you know, what like, what do you mean by this line? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not, that hasn't happened. Um, and I predominantly don't, there's only, there's only been one, 
I don't try to write, I write from my experience, but nothing, I try to, you know, hide any autobiographical references as much as possible because I feel like writing is an escape from my autobiographical experience. Mm. Like mm. something might stem from it. Um, yeah, so no, no one's really ever, ever questioned that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm the same in terms of people I hang out with primarily not being poetry people. Yeah. Quote unquote. Yeah. And uh, I think that's good and bad. I think it's I think it's great to have both. Um, I can't really imagine just being friends with other poets. I think that would be a little stifling. Um, but at the same time, I'm so grateful when I get to have a conversation with someone. I mean, obviously that's why I do this is because you just get to talk about poems and what it used to be a poet. Yes. You know, and that's because it's a lonely craft in yeah. its way. Yeah. It can be like, like, you know, like so many things, but yeah, like, yeah, going back to like the shame of saying I'm a poet and I'm a writer and like the ego in, in that as well. It's a weird thing. Yeah. So, yeah. I always um, quote um, Bernadette Mayer's line from um, the poem is called, uh, I think it's, oh, I'm, see, I'm so bad with recall. Um, there's a line that she has, though, called um, at the end of the poem, this is the most generous contribution I can afford. I think it's called the, strategic, the, the tragic state of the Statue of Liberty. Um, you can find it online, but the poem ends with, you know, basically, um, you know, Bernadette Mayer has lines like, you know, give me the doctor who thought that his time was more valuable than my daughter's health and my own, um, you know, give me, you know, she's talking about class and she says something like, oh, the Statue of Liberty is such a, is in such a tragic state state and I would like to help and then ends with and this is the most generous contribution I can afford <laughs> and you know yeah and like yeah. it's paradoxical and <clears throat> it's yeah tongue-in-cheek but also earnest and serious and real and yeah. Yeah. Um, when you write something like or when you're asked to write something um, and this is where I've had conflict with uh, loved ones around me they're always like stop like you don't this is enough like you don't need to um, put all of your time into this and my argument is well yes I do because I don't want to waste anyone's time like people don't have to like what I write but everything I put out I have tried like so hard and spent as much time as I can to ensure that I can let it go and I am often pried by like editors like I had one person the other day say I am kicking you out of this google doc like what you have written is done this is enough no oh, wow. more edits oh, like wow. okay. so I find it really hard to let go yeah. but it's also you know t such a privilege to to have space and to be asked to do something um which is why I want to give back which is why I guess you do this you know these conversations um and why I'm really interested in you know as, like assisting with the interview section for Cordite I've never learned so much and yeah I've never felt so much appreciative for the time and also the generosity that, that poets, um, like, you know, give when it comes to contributing to the community. Um, yeah, I deeply feel that too. And it reminds me a lot of what um, our mutual mate, Robert Wood, says about poetry being a gift economy. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I'm sure a lot of people would sort of go, well, it shouldn't be. And like, why, is, why does it have to be a gift economy? But, but that's what it is. Yes. And I feel that so deeply for everyone who comes to talk to me. Um, I wish I could say that it was an altruistic act, but it is also, I learn a lot. Oh, <laughs> so, absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, I yeah. think there's also something so selfish and monstrous, especially. <laughs> and, and I think you have to be aware of that. Mm. I mean, I recently, I've tried to, I've been working on anti-allergies I lost a great many people in a very short amount of time and death is inevitable. 
like and I was watching there's this YouTube lecture of Lacan saying something like um death is inevitable and if it, if it wasn't so or if your knowledge of death not being inevitable then how could you bear life um yeah I which see that. I, I, yeah. I relate to in times mm-hmm. of you know under when you're under duress or stress you know and not to get too sort of um morbid but basically um we all will experience death and do and it's not the it's not the concept of dying it's 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 how and it's when yeah and it's mm. um you know it's so layered and so that's when I started writing sort of like quote like anti-allergies in response to grief because of course historically um poetry like allergies were written by mostly uh men um who were grieving the loss of um someone of importance like social importance or say another poet but it was also an act of economy Mm. so using the death as a departure like no pun intended but like for an allergy to be written which then was a production of value so the poem being yeah well it's sort of Lindsay Tuggle um talks about it in Calentia. Yeah, I just have that on my reading pile there. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So like, um, and this is what I what I research as well, like um, the political economies of allergy. Um, and there's this um, amazing book called Heroines by Kate Zambrino, I believe. I'm really bad with, yeah, recall, but it's basically about how modernist writers like um, T.S. Eliot and F. Scott Fitzgerald, um, you know, appropriated the emotions of their 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 wives um, to become, you know, considered geniuses. Mm. Um, and their wives were either, well, yeah, um, uh, Zelda Fitzgerald was um, in the end institutionalized, mm. and um, also T.S. Eliot's wife was as well. Um, I think it's Lois. I've forgotten her name. Really? Yeah. Both of them? Yeah. So, um, and also the fact that I can't remember her name, but I know his name reflects the act of the way that we've been conditioned to only sort of lord over, you know, know who um, T.S. Eliot is despite his wife. And so if we talk about a book, like a really new book, so I hope this is all right, but yeah, um, talk about a book like Lindsay's, which it's a book about like deaths close to her... Um, I have a very scant understanding of it so far but in uh, Kate Middleton's intro she talks about how Lindsay foregrounds a female in that book so strongly and how that's you know quite a quite a radical thing and I guess to what you're saying yeah maybe there's a sense of like is that do we see that as, as, as valuable? Are we interested in that? Do we want to hear that? You know, do we want that? Do we want those elegies? Do we want like in memory of WB Yeats? Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I yeah. bought, um, oh, book. oh, good books. Yeah. I, it's, um, see, this is the thing. Yeah. I'm so bad at recall. Um, so it's called the gendering of melancholia by Juliana. Um, Shasari, um, I hope I've pronounced her name right. I'm also really bad at pronunciations because I often read words in my head and not aloud. Yeah, but um, mm. basically it's about um, like, well, the subheading, like subtitle is Feminism, Psychoanalysis and the S- Symbolics of Loss in Renaissance Literature, which are also still um, unfortunately like... Um, inherent today in a lot of the allergies that 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 have been placed value over more Mm. so Mm. um and then you know um we have like say um people who are writing elegiac poetry um from um from from detention um which uh michelle um carl uh, publishes in in mascara which is what we sort of um explored at the like represented at the sporting poets mm. um so it's kind of like whose whose grief is valued over others as well 
I was really angry when um, Scott Morrison announced the Royal Commission into um, institutional abuse for people with disability and then he made a personal reference to um, uh, a, a friend of his saying like this one's for you Gary like I think that was the name and I was like no you do not have the right or the privilege to have a, an emotional response to this when you are your government policy policy being distant does that mean that that commission only happened because of Gary? Well, Is I don't know. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that was the quote. I should look it up. But that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, no, you don't have the right. Just because you have a personal and direct experience with someone who has um, unfortunately, um, you know, and unsurprisingly suffered abuse um, via being in such institu institutional environments, doesn't mean you get... An, an opportunity to express your emotion like this should be have this should one have never occurred but two it does three it will continue and it should be bigger than yeah like his that. he centered his emotion in that and, and how dare he how dare he elevate his you know because of his secondary experience for supporting a friend like and that's what gets me angry like yeah i do find that really tough um that kind of yeah like you were just you put it so well before in terms of it becomes like a departure point like especially secondhand third hand fourth hand grief grief around the current current affairs and things like that mm. becoming a departure point for a poem and then that poem becomes valuable and the writer gets to be like or in this case the prime minister gets to be like have, like draw this connection between themselves and the tragedy and somehow get this extra val validity absolutely yeah. and one of the most um informative books i've always returned to and was actually um i hate using the word ironic because it's not applicable i'm just really bad with with words um when i'm saying them because if i was writing them i'd have like 15 totally. minutes 15 minutes yeah to I get it down <laughs> yeah but but when i that was uh, eerily i say or yeah. like i uh, type reading in a timely manner when um an act um uh, when a family member was uh killed by another family member as a result of mental illness and was reported um on the news um, I was actually reading Susan Sontag's Regarding the Pain of Others and um, it's all about war photography and about how um, we fetish, I can, um, there's a fetishization or we, fetish, we, we become uh, pleasured or um, there's an act of, um, you know, witnessing is important but um, this, the focus was on war photography and... Mm. Um, how you get like a buzz from it yeah and yeah. how it was a form of titillation or, yeah. or entertainment and mm. this is what also happens with the concept of true crime which oh god yes this is yeah which is which yeah. is also something that i get really um just because i've had like and like i said for me it's personal and there would be definitely countering arguments like um, but I do get like, say really riled up and, and, and angry and take things way too personally when people say like, you know, oh, that was such an interesting, interesting case or, you know, my favorite serial killer is dot, 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 or, <laughs> or, you know, such a fascinating, you know, and it's like, these are people's realities. Like this is not a concept. Yeah. Um, there is a, a podcast whose name escapes me at the moment, which is, created by two women and it the work that it does is to center the story of the you know overwhelmingly um female victims of the crimes serial killer crimes have yeah. you heard about this podcast i haven't no right yeah and so kind of the only example counter to serial and all the other ones um which just exactly as you say they just fetishize wasn't he weird and this is how he did this thing and him 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 and this is how he killed and p.s there was also, there's a female body there mm. but that's just kind of glossed over she's one of many and she doesn't really count like we don't know anything about who that person was and and what their concerns were and what their life was and yeah absolutely yeah. Mm. and i think um 
I also have this like problem when it comes to lack of ethics being introduced um, to uh, not all not at all universities, um, but uh, some like or you know some units that I have taught when there is creative writing, like say a creative writing assessment, there isn't a discussion about an like ethics and who gets to say what story and. Um, also, you know, like the concept, the concept of like gritty realism. It's like what you're talking about, like lower to working class, really, like representations. Like, why is it gritty? Is it gritty because it's not clean? Is it not clean because it's not financially, um, you know, like it's not socio, it's not socially considered to be um, worthy because there's a lack of education there, like. I just think like that that whole term and the way that we speak about these things like um, it, it, it just really objectifies and renders it, the, the, the people who are centered at in this reality. It, it's a form of dehumanization for the sake of creative writing in quote brackets like which I just have a huge a huge issue with like and that is purely based upon my own personal experiences of supporting family members who have been subject to violence and also, um, uh, you know, experiencing um, having a, a, you know, loved one um, killed by another loved one. And, you know, domestic violence is, you know, so common, yet um, the commonality of it isn't focused upon. It's just more referenced. And so... I really love, not love, see, there you go, like I'm sort of, but like I really think that it's the necessity of of writing and of poetry is also not to just use such topics as, sorry, such issues as topics, but to sort of deconstruct the ways in which we have understood or been socially conditioned to view um, realities as, um, as like, yeah, like topics or concepts like you know the abstract of them like yeah to kind of like find cracks and dig underneath accepted realities yeah Yeah, that's another really important thing that a poem can do yeah i'm trying to think of a good example right now well one that that does come to mind is um anupama's uh uh body poem yes second third reference on poetry says because i chatted to an opener and then yeah this book just keeps coming up because it's so good yeah i was (laughs) fortunate enough to review and write about it for overland yeah and it was just um used like poetry as a way to um you know delve beyond the like surface of um i guess like experiences of like diaspora and gender and 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 the body and the abject but also make it beautiful as well Mm. and Mm. that's why I was so fascinated like there was no act of disgust um or or like casting off of like say there's a poem about shaving legs and and you know the, the, the hairs floating in the bath and they just were they just were floating in the bath yeah there was nothing else in there. I love that poem. Yeah. Think about it all the time. Yes. Well, when I take a bath. When <laughs> I work. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And also just inclusion. Like, I've just read Pam Brown's Authentic Local, which is a book that she published in 2008. And I'm really really ashamed to say that it is the only full Pam Brown collection that I've ever read but everything I've ever read of hers I've, I've absolutely adored and I feel like she's a kindred spirit um, if I can say that but the thing I think the commonality there is that willingness and capacity for the poem to include you know hairs in the bath or in, in Pam's case um, strange little phrases like uh, beware of tree failure in this park and um, TV shows that she's watching and books that she's reading and like rubbish and seagulls and um, just just dailiness mm. and I think that that also can be a way for a poem to show you how jagged and inconsistent and weird 
and you know not smooth things are whereas you know going back to your um sad man elegy poems yeah that's such a good way <laughs> things, are, <laughs> things are very smooth and they make sense and sort of like when there is anger in something like especially from say a, a marginalized person um and or a woman um it's considered to be you know that's you know, an act of hysteria still, you know, or like an act of instability. Definitely. And, and, and yeah. why should that be so? And just I'm because... I'm constantly apologising for being angry. I mean, like, I yes. don't let myself get angry, but when it happens, I yes. feel so ashamed. There's this April Bernard poem called Anger, and um, I, yeah, I'll send it to you, and it just was quite freeing when I read it. I actually have two things to say about this, but um, uh, there's a line that said... Um, there's a line that says something like, I, uh, I um, bang my fist to the desk in anger and then apologize to the desk. Oh, yeah, I think I know that. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a powerful poem. But then what you talk about, the act of saying sorry, and it, it is actually something I wanted to talk about um, and always do, I think, just as a reminder. But I was fortunate enough to go to... Um, uh, go to a conference um, in uh, Claremont, California. Um, what I used some of the money. I didn't get a scholarship to do my PhD, but there was funds allocated for an um, uh, an international conference, and I was like. I'm going to get that money, even if it costs me money, you know, um, which it did. But I was like, no, nah, I'm going to try and, you know. And look, I sound really disenfranchised, but I'm not. I do have a lot of support, access to libraries, things like that. It's just that, um, you know, I'm writing my, like, thesis on an Australian poet, Dorothy Porter, whereas, you know, I'm trying to contribute to the archive. I didn't know that. Yeah, I, I didn't know that. I don't know that most days, but, you know, <laughs> okay. um, but I'm just yeah. saying that, like, you know, whereas I know people were given scholarships to write on, like, say, American writers, and I'm like, stop focusing outwards. Like, let's look inwards. How Why are don't they we... not funding your Dorothy Porter thesis? Um, crazy. I, yeah, I was told that. I applied three times and was told that, um, you know, informally, and I don't want to get into trouble, like I said, for saying this, but I was told informally that they didn't award it to me because I was going to do it anyway. And um, I, as, you know, someone who's the first person to go to university in my family, which is, you know, in, in the future won't be an excuse to be angry anymore because um, it will just be apparent the more that university education is, is involved for, you know, to be considered employable. But, you know, that did, you know, contribute to a bit of a chip that I still have and am trying to smooth out because... Um, but then, yeah, the anger and, mm. you know, and the spite becomes a motivator. But then, yeah, the act of apology after that because there is shame in, in being angry and being told, calm down, calm down. That's why I hate that Taylor Swift song, like, shake it off. Like, sometimes <laughs> you cannot shake it off. Sometimes you, sometimes oh, to shake it off point. is an act of irresponsibility. Oh, you're right. Um, Damn, I do like that song. Wh- why, though? Why do we like it? Is it a validation? <laughs> it's catchy. It's catchy. It's catchy for a reason. Yeah, you know, yeah. shake that off. Just get over it. Like, you know, focus on something else. Just be strong. Be stronger. Yeah. Soldier on. Yeah, soldier on. Yeah. But, um, uh, so I went to this, um, this poetry conference, uh, and um, which I'd you know never been to the states, and anyway, it was like this big, huge, massive deal, and um, I was in a workshop with Robin Coste Lewis. Wow. Yes, yes, I was so fortunate, and I arrived. We were told not to uh, come late to her class, and I did for once arrive on time. Um, because the people who came late, she said, do you know that I've just driven two hours to get here on time? I am a mother. I'm trying to complete my PhD. And I also have chronic, like, you know, chronic, chronic pain, basically. Um, because her story is just, um, you know, so, um, unique and distinctive in regards to how she overcame her injuries to continue to, to write and to be a poet. Um, but yet that is not what her work should be known for. Um, that's why she doesn't talk. I believe she doesn't talk about it a lot, but I shouldn't talk on behalf of her. But 
anyway, like we were giving criticism to like constructive criticisms to a poem that was read and I started saying oh I'm sorry I just feel like maybe um that you know you could start off with say like this image and Robin was like I'm gonna stop you right there and she looked at me so sternly and she said why are you apologizing mm-hmm. what you're saying is valid don't you ever apologize again for offering like constructive criticism that you know you have the right to say And then I just didn't say anything and like my eyes welled up Mm. and she said, are you okay? And then I said, as tears were rolling down my eyes, thank you. (laughs) You didn't say sorry. I didn't say sorry, but yeah, I still say it despite that experience. It's a tough word to leave behind. I know. And I just feel like I've let, it's, yeah, it is, um, it's that strong that even like one of the most, you know, powerful writers that I've ever read, you mm. know, for so many reasons, to look you in the eye as a person to person in a room, you know, to say stop mm. and and you say that and then you thank them and then you still don't. So Oh, but that? it's a lifetime habit. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Would you mind reading us a poem to end with um Perhaps yeah a porter poem i actually didn't bring any oh porter cool with okay. me but um yeah like one of yours or one of like uh, totally up to you yeah so um i guess uh this poem uh i i don't really i'm not good at preambles but basically It relates to a lot of the topics we spoke about today and I don't know if it successfully captures them um, but it's my attempt to. So um, it's written after Susan Sontag and it's called Regarding, um, which is in square brackets, uh, The Pain of Others and there's a... um, Uh, excerpt from Susan Sontag's book regarding the pain of others um, which is a question what does it mean to protest suffering as distinct from acknowledging it and the poem goes since many of the plot lines explored throughout my plays have started leaking into my current reality I'm now publicly admitting to embracing other people's anguishes for the sake of my own creative endeavors Over the past decade, I've consistently been celebrated as a prophetic and iconic playwright, a trademark I still justifiably hold. However, since the themes I've so realistically and poetically portrayed throughout my works have tragically begun to impact upon my daily routines, my gratification with such accolades may not fully be appreciated without such a declaration. I've experienced a great loss, which I choose not to discuss at this point in time, but I'll admit that until recently, I've always felt more comfortable writing about the lives of others, from a distance, but most especially while my subjects are inhabiting their own homes. It's not unfitting to mention that after years of dinner invitations and appearances, I've been praised as not only being an exceptional conversationalist, but a much-desired guest. During such dinner parties, I've always offered to wash up after each course, yet I've always been denied this pleasure. So I end up refilling my glass and observing the performance of domestic politics. Over the years, I've only ever contributed to one squabble. When an amateur actor cast in one of my plays premiering at the time didn't recognise me, and vehemently began questioning the ethics of the script, which was based upon a widely reported and terribly violent incident. The actor's naive soliloquy continued until I politely remarked that there was not only Posada sourcing the upper region of their lip, but also the tip of their nose. After the actor fled to the bathroom to wipe away, now not only the tomato puree, but a solid amount of mascara, My fellow comrades reassured and praised me for my honesty. I was then reminded about all the positive reviews the show in question had received. I'll have to conclude this admission shortly, 
but I do hope this announcement will be respected and will allow me to continue my quest for writing authentic dialogue and descriptions. Something I truly believe is often unattainable for people directly experiencing the duress, which makes for such interesting material that I possess an ability to create and represent upon a stage. As proof of my skills, I can testify that I've received numerous writing grants and government financial support, even patronage, which, as you'll reasonably understand, I've not been able to question or reject. My hand-to-mouth existence prior to my fruitful reputation isn't unlike the precariousness of those begging for money while resting against the entrance to the building where I've recently commenced my latest writer's residency. And, like most artistic entrepreneurs, I can offer nothing as I believe carrying coins grinds my inspiration down and clo closer to the pavers, which I've strived brick hard to lift myself up, up and away from for the sake of my creative practice. <laughs>